Open our eyes this morning to what you have revealed in your word. Teach us this morning. Teach us to think well. Teach us to recognize truth. If there's a need to rebuke us or to convict us, we ask that you would do that. If there's a, an area in which we need encouragement and strengthening, we ask that you would do that. If there's a, a place where we're not as knowledgeable as we could be, we ask that you would give us the knowledge that we need. And we ask, Lord, that you would feed our souls on your good word this morning. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we're looking at, at the book of Hebrews. We're continuing on. Uh, last week, we, we started with Moses. We we uh, looked at the fact that Moses, in verse 24 of Hebrews 11, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then this morning we're told, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen, and by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. What's interesting about these verses, and we're going to turn to Exodus in a moment and look at some text there to, to get the, the, a fuller context. What's interesting is, is that going back as far as uh, 1,500, 1,600 years before Christ, the, the Lord was setting prophetic pictures of redemption through Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself through his own son. He was setting those pictures within history and within the text of scripture. I, I mentioned fairly frequently, and I'll continue to do that because it's good for us to be reminded that in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus met up with two of his disciples who had left Jerusalem early and didn't know that he'd been raised from the dead. He met them on the road to Emmaus, which is about a seven-mile stretch of, of road between Jerusalem and the town of Emmaus to the west. And as they walked, he asked them why they were sad. They said, it's because Jesus died. We thought he was the Messiah, but I guess we were wrong. And then he rebukes them for not believing the scriptures. And then it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he took them through everything that the scripture says about him. A part of what Jesus took them through certainly was the Passover. And so we're going to consider that this morning. The first thing that we're told in, in, chapter, in verse 27 is that Moses left Egypt by faith. This is speaking of the event after he had killed the Egyptian. In Exodus chapter 2, 11, it says that when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and he looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. 
First things first, there, there seems to be almost a contradiction. We're told in Hebrews 11:27 27 that he was not afraid of the king, and we're told in, in Exodus 2 that he was afraid. And that, that might strike some as being a contradiction. It's really not. We have to be controlled in the, by, by the language of Scripture. We have to let Scripture speak for itself. We don't take away from it. We don't add to it. Exodus 2 doesn't tell us that he was afraid of Pharaoh. It says that he was afraid because the knowledge of what he had done had become known. And specifically, it had become known among the Hebrews. I think that we can assume that Moses had an idea of his role as deliverer. He certainly had the belief as, a, as a, an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter that he needed to identify with his own people, that he needed to accept the reproaches of Christ. He couldn't look, as I said last week, he couldn't look forward in time and see Jesus himself. He understood that those who, who trust in Yahweh and who insist on living in holiness are going to suffer as a result. And so, I don't think Moses is afraid of Pharaoh. If anything, Moses might be afraid that, that uh, the people of Israel have misconstrued what's going on. It could be, too, that Pharaoh, in verse 15, when Pharaoh tries to kill Moses... We would look at that and we would say Pharaoh's trying to kill Moses because Moses committed murder and murder's against the law and murder needs to be answered by a, by a death. It, it might be, it might also be that Pharaoh, knowing that Moses is a Hebrew, says this could be the start of an armed rebellion of Hebrew slaves. And the way you kill a snake is by cutting off the head. I'm going to kill Moses and cut off the head of this rebellion. In any case, what we're told in, in Hebrews 11.27 is that Moses left in faith. By, left, by faith he left, not because he was afraid of Pharaoh, but because he had his eyes on Yahweh. He had his eyes on God who is unseen. God who is unseen, whose promises had been passed down to him uh, by oral tradition, from his family, loomed larger in Moses' eyes than Pharaoh in his palace on the throne with all the power of Egypt behind him. Moses is 40. He's still a relatively young man. He is not yet ready to deliver Egypt. He has a, a ton to learn when he comes back in 40 years. He's a very different man. But he already knew at this point God is the God of all life. God is the God of the world. And I'm not afraid of Pharaoh because God is in control of all things. And then we're told in, in Hebrews 11:28 that by faith Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. Now, if, if you're, you're still there in Hebrews chapter 11 and you're looking at verses 27 and 28, I just want to let you know there's 40 years in the white space between those two verses. And just as a general reminder, quite often as we read Scripture, we forget that there can be a passage of time that's extraordinary. We saw in Genesis dealing with Abraham, we saw that at one point there's a 15-year passage of time that just goes by so quick. We forget that life has gone on day by day. Moses had left 
Egypt. He had gone to Midian. Um, the, the story is told in the early couple of chapters of Exodus. He uh, be, became the, the favorite of a man named Jethro, whose name, who is also called uh, Rule. Uh, Jethro gave him his daughter Zipporah as a wife. He had a couple of sons and spent 40 years. And at the time that he's, he's getting ready to maybe start thinking about slowing down, maybe not full retirement, but slowing down and turning everything over to his sons, the Lord calls him and says, you go back to Egypt. You're going to go back to Egypt. We see this in, in uh, Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said, to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Before Moses had ever returned to Egypt, God gives him some critical information. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to identify the people of Israel as the people of Yahweh. When Moses says, let my people go, it's not Moses saying, let my people go. It's God saying through Moses, let my people, God's people, go. And God says to Moses, you're going to go stand in front of Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't let the people go. We can have a hard time with the idea of God hardening people's hearts. We're told 17 times in Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Ten of those times, God is doing the hardening. Three of the times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, but the first time we see anything said about it is here in chapter 4, and God says, I'll do the hardening. I'll do the hardening. Four of those times we're simply told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened with, without anyone being uh, given credit for it, God or Pharaoh. And, and three of those, at least, I think the, the, uh, the context says it's God doing the hardening. But four of them don't say who does the hardening. Three of them say Pharaoh is doing the hardening. Ten of them say God is doing the hardening. The first one is in Exodus 4, God does the hardening. The last six times Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's God doing the hardening specifically. And the very last time, the 18th time, <coughs> isn't Pharaoh specifically. It says God hardened the heart of all the Egyptians so that they pursued the people through the Red Sea. It's an interesting circumstance to tell Moses, go back, aim, your, aim yourself at delivering my people, but Pharaoh's not going to listen to you because I'm going to cause him to not listen to you. Why does God do that? In chapter 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. It just doesn't fit with, with the common idea about who God is, especially in our time. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go so that God can free his people, punish 
Egypt at the same time. He would not let Pharaoh repent of his sins so that nobody on the face of the earth could say, Israel is free because of me. The only reason Israel was freed is because Yahweh set about to free them. Moses couldn't take credit for it. He tried to set them free, killed the Egyptian and got nowhere. Pharaoh, at at least one point, was on the verge of setting them free when God hardened his heart because God said he wasn't done. We have that statement in, uh, in Exodus 4 where Moses is going to tell Pharaoh in their first meeting that God is going to kill Pharaoh's son. He's going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn. And the reference here is to the 10th plague. There were 10 plagues total. The nine had come and gone. When we get to Exodus chapter 11, and then Moses comes to the people of Israel and says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the, mill, the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So who's going to die in Egypt? When the Lord first gives this statement, who's going to die? The firstborn in every household. He doesn't identify Egyptians, and in fact, he specifically says, even the slave girl, even the Hebrew girl, death is coming to every household. So what we can do is we can look at uh, we can look at the Exodus event and we can look at this 10th plague and we can see the, the judgment of death on the household and, and oversimplify it and say God was determined to bring death into the Egyptians' households while he set the Hebrews free. But, but the issue is not that God is bringing judgment against the enemies of Israel. God is bringing judgment against his enemies, which is all humanity. And so it's every household in Egypt that faces death. This is what Exodus 12 says. God says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. By the way, we often talk about or hear about the angel of death, the angel of death. And there's, there's points in Exodus where it talks about this. But God is making personal claim to this. God says, I'm going to do this. That makes the angel of death Jesus. That makes the angel of death the pre-incarnate son of God who is carrying out the judgment of God. Again, not what we commonly think. So every single household in Egypt faced death. Uh, and we're, we're told also that the only way that anybody can escape this judgment is through a substitute, through a lamb. Exodus 12.3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they are to take for uh, a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household, and they're given the instructions that they are to kill the lamb, they are to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of the house and over the lintel of the house and mark the house with blood. We see, too, that the substitute is not a one-for-one -one substitute. 
Several weeks ago, we talked about Abraham offering up Isaac, and God provided the ram for Isaac. When the angel, uh, the angel of the Lord stopped, stopped Abraham from slaughtering Isaac, Abraham turned and looked and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns and he went and he offered that ram in place of Isaac. That's a one-to-one sacrifice. One man, Isaac, one sacrifice. Now we have one-to-many. We have a lamb for a household. And in fact, it even goes beyond that because they're told that uh, in the next verse... They're told if the I'm sorry, here it is. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors nearest the house are to take one according one lamb according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. It's because they had to consume all of it. <coughs> Excuse me. Good things come in three, so just prepare yourself. They had to eat all of the lamb in one sitting. They couldn't leave anything left. Isaac is a one-for-one sacrifice. Now we have a one-for-many sacrifice. My my tendency would be to overdo it. My tendency would be to say, wow, how many people do we have in the household? Let's get that many lambs. And the Lord has just said, no, 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 no. One. One. And and I'm going to come back to this point, but just to make the point now, it's not because the blood of the lamb is what is is causing God to skip over the house. It's because the faith and the promise of God carried out through the sacrifice of this lamb. We're told in the book of Hebrews that those who ignore the Lord, those who trample his blood underfoot, are crucifying again the Savior to themselves. They're they're crucifying Jesus all over again. There only needed to be one offering. There only needed to be one offering. And again, it's not the sacrifice itself that is going to save them, but God's willingness to accept that sacrifice as a substitute for their lives. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So those four points again, every household in Egypt faces death. God's people could only escape the judgment through the offering of a substitute. That substitute would satisfy for many people, for a number of people. And ultimately, it's not the blood that is saving them, but God's willingness to accept the blood, to accept the death of that animal on their behalf. And so we're told in Hebrews eleven twenty seven that by faith Moses kept the Passover, 28 rather, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. So what did, what did Moses and the people believe? Well, they, they, they had to believe that judgment was actually coming. When God said to Moses, I'm going to come through at night and strike the land of Egypt, and every household is under that judgment, not just the Egyptian households, but every household. Moses had to say, I believe that. 
Now Moses had already seen in nine plagues, he'd already seen the, the power of God revealed in, in remarkable ways. He had every reason to believe it, but of course Moses is a sinner, as we are sinners, and we've got every reason not to believe it because of our rebellion. So the first thing that they had to believe is that judgment was actually coming and could not be escaped on any human terms. And second, they had to believe that God actually required a substitute and that from apart from that substitute, they would die. They couldn't stand outside their house as the Lord came over and try and reason with him during the judgment. And third, they had to believe that one lamb would protect many in the household. And we might have it in our minds that this is talking about children. This is talking about the oldest child in the house, but it's the firstborn. He's going to strike the firstborn. And so if you have a married couple, both of whom are the oldest children, and they have one child, all three are going to die. They're all firstborn. It doesn't say firstborn male. It just says firstborn. And they had to believe that the, this strange act of slaughtering an animal and putting its blood on the doorposts would be received by God and God would pass over them in the judgment. And fourth, they had to believe that it really wasn't the blood that was going to do that, but that God would accept the death of the animal on their behalf. If they're left with simply the superstition of I'm doing this thing, then they're not actually believing God. They're not actually trusting God. And inevitably, they're going to change the, the rules. They're going to change the circumstances and the way things play out. Under the Mosaic Law, there was a, a very detailed, very precise way that offerings were to be offered for sin, for burnt offerings, for peace offerings, and, and, and all through. There were specific offerings for different things. There were specific orders in which things had to be given. There were specific combinations of how those offerings came about. And as long as there was a temple, as long as there was a tabernacle and a temple, the Jewish people carried that through with the exception of the, the 70 years in captivity. They returned from captivity. They carried on those sacrifices. As Jesus grew up, his parents were going to the temple at Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of First Fruits or, or Pentecost, and they were going through the sacrifices. In 70 AD, the Romans had invaded uh, and occupied Israel actually for, for hundreds of years, but in 70 AD, everything came to a head and the city of Jerusalem was overthrown and the temple itself was destroyed. And it became impossible to offer a sacrifice because there is no longer a temple. There is no longer a consecrated place. I would look at that and maybe you would look at that and say that spells trouble for the Jewish people. What they did is they, they, they tried to work around that. And according to some Eastern European Jewish traditions, now on the Day of Atonement, instead of bringing an animal as a sacrifice, as a blood sacrifice, I'm not making this up. You would take a chicken by the hind legs. You would swing it over your head while you confess your sins. And then you would, then you would cut the head off the chicken and have the chicken for dinner. 
See, when it's done without faith, when, it, when, it, when it's done without a sense of obedience, when, it, when it's done without a sense of you're actually intergate, interacting with God, when it becomes just this activity thing, we end up doing all kinds of silly things. Let's, let's bring this home and think about what it means for us. First of all, we've got to face the fact that we are warned that judgment is coming against every single person. It is appointed for men to die once and women too, and after this comes judgment. I don't know how old any of you are, well, one or two, but I, I don't really know how old the, the majority of you are, so I don't know how much life you've lived from the point, time of your birth up to this moment, but I can tell you exactly how much time you have left the rest of your life. We all have the rest of our life left. And at the moment that, that the Lord requires our life of us, and the, the moment that we die, our eternity is set. We die one time, and after that comes the judgment. It's personal. No one escapes. Nobody slips through the cracks. We're also told that a day of judgment is coming. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says in verses 31 to 33, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. So there is a day of judgment coming when the Lord brings everything to the table. So I, just as a, as a point of thinking about it, the warning of individual judgment is, is a reminder that each one of us must answer to God. And the point of the day of judgment is, is a reminder that this present age will not be allowed to continue indefinitely. God will forcibly stop it. There is a point where he will say, enough. It, it's similar to that point when that first raindrop fell on the ark. And God said, enough. The difference is this last judgment, this final judgment, truly is the final judgment. There will not be a judgment after because there will not be a judgment after. There will not be a need for a judgment after. The wicked will suffer eternal torment for their sins. Those who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in the person work of Jesus Christ will be conformed to his image perfectly and beyond sin. Final judgment is the last judgment necessary. So I, I brought up four points regarding Passover and they relate to the, the, the plan of God for redemption and judgment and, and apply to communion as we aim ourselves toward communion this morning. First, like those in Egypt, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being is born under the full terrible weight of the judgment of God. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by action. Our actions differ. 
our motivations differ. The New Testament says some people's sins are evident immediately. Others have to be revealed and won't be revealed until the day of judgment. Our actions differ. The natures is the same. We're all born with exactly the same fallen nature. And that fallen nature without a single act of sin added to it condemns us. You don't actually have to sin a single time to be a sinner because it's your nature. It's your nature. A second, like the people in Israel, the, the elect are not spared judgment on the basis of being elect. They're not born as a different kind of person. They're born under the judgment of God. They're under, born under that weight of judgment. They are spared judgment at the moment of justification, which is by grace alone, not because of any human merit, and by faith alone and not by any good works. They're not saved because they're elect. They're saved because Jesus Christ propitiated the Father's wrath. That word propitiate means to satisfy. He satisfied the Father's wrath. We're not saved because God looked at some of us and said, never mind, it's okay. He's holy, and in his holiness, he has to answer sin because sin is a direct insult to his character and his nature. He will not leave sin unanswered. He cannot leave sin unanswered. Third, as as with that lamb in Egypt in the Passover, one sacrifice is sufficient for many. Romans makes this Beautiful statement. For then is, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, he's speaking of Adam's sin, even so through one act of righteousness, that's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Now in that, that previous verse, Are are we being told that all men will be saved? No, because again, we're dealing with categories. What we're being told is that all in Adam die and all in Christ are justified. All in Adam die, all in Christ are justified, but not all are in Christ. Not all are in Christ. Just a quick note. Technical difficulties prevented the remainder of the sermon from recording. And so I'm sitting at my desk now on Wednesday afternoon, finishing it up. I was saying, as Romans 5, 18 and 19 say, that all in Adam die and all in Christ are justified. All in Christ live. Obviously, not all are in Christ. How do we come into Jesus? How do we come into that relationship? We come in by the grace of God through faith. See, the fourth thing to remember here is it's not faith in some generic sense that saves us, but specific faith in the person and the work of Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Saving faith is never vague. It's never inexact. It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims believe in Jesus. We have to believe in his person and his work as they are revealed by Scripture. God has communicated the gospel to us. The gospel is good news, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ, of his person and of his work. We know what the gospel says. The gospel says that God created everything 
perfect and found it to be very good. Gen Genesis 131 says that. We know that Adam sinned, and we know that when Adam sinned, every human being who would be born in Adam died in that sin. Every sinner deserves the judgment of God for sin by their sinful nature first, that Adamic nature that they have, and then by the acts of sin that they commit because they have a fallen nature in Adam. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is God the Son in human flesh. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of God and the law of God. And then he died on the cross as a perfect substitute for his people. He took the punishment for their sin upon himself. And in exchange, he granted them his own righteousness. And when we specifically trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was raised from the dead bodily, God accepts Jesus' death on our behalf, and he counts Jesus' righteousness for us as though it were our own righteousness, as though we had lived that. And as a result of that, the judgment of God passes over us, not because God ignores sin, not because he looks at our sin and again shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, well, never mind, it's okay. But because Jesus himself offered himself as our substitute. I hope you see how wonderfully personal this is. God requires a death for each one of us. Jesus didn't die in general. Jesus didn't die a token death for sin. Jesus died in the place of each and every person who would believe in him. He didn't just bear our sins on the cross. He bore my sins. And my prayer is that he bore your sins as well. When I trusted in Jesus and believed the gospel, the Father accepted Jesus' death on my behalf. His acceptance is so clear and absolute that I don't have to go and persuade God to accept Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. You remember I mentioned earlier that the Israelites, when they had placed the blood on the doorway, didn't have to go out in the streets as God came through judging the firstborn of Egypt and trying to persuade him to accept the blood. He had told them that he would, and he did. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we don't have to persuade him to accept Christ on our behalf. It was his idea. He's called us to trust in the Lord Jesus. See, God the Father didn't accept Jesus' death on my behalf because I persuaded him to. He accepted Jesus' death on my behalf because it was his idea in the first place. Because he poured his grace out upon me. He filled me with faith. He granted me a new life. And in that moment, I was forgiven, justified, atoned for, adopted, set apart as his son. I was filled with his spirit. I was given a hunger for his word. I was made a part of his body. I was completely accepted in the beloved. That's the gospel. That's what it is that we believe is true. Do you know there's nothing more important than your eternal destiny? If you know today that you're a sinner and that you are facing judgment, if the Holy Spirit has made that clear to you, then my prayer is that you will humble yourself before the Father, that you will recognize the beauty of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross, that you will cry out to God. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's my prayer that you would repent 
It's my prayer that you would turn to him and receive the gift of eternal life. 